Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 1. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? Now Christ comes to the Perean region, east of Jordan. And he'll be in this region for just a few months until his final journey to Jerusalem, where, of course, he will be uh, arrested and tried and wrongfully, from man's point of view, executed, crucified on the cross of Calvary, where in the last phase of his ministry, the few months in Perea are covered in much greater detail in the Gospel of Luke, But here we're told of this particular incident. And he's confronted once again by a trick or a trap question. uh, Verse 2, the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Now Matthew tells us just a little more. The question was, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason. This is the trap. Now the popular teaching developed from the tradition of the rabbis and the teachers adding to the law of Moses. The popular teaching was yes, that a man or a woman come to that, it works either way, can put away his wife or her husband for any reason, if she displeases him or he displeases her, then for any reason he could divorce and put away his wife. That was the common teaching. When the Lord refutes that in this passage, as we shall see, his disciples are taken aback and shocked because they, like all the population generally, thought that you could obtain a divorce for pretty well any reason. And that was the idea of that generation at that time. Now the Lord had previously, on more than one occasion, rebuked the Jews for their traditions, for the many additions they'd made to the Mosaic law and the regulations that they'd added, and so on. And so they seek to trap him in this. Is he going to apply this to divorce? Is he going to take away from people the rights to divorce for any reason if somebody is displeasing to them? Well, that will make him extremely unpopular, and this is likely what he will do, because he rejects all the traditional additions to the law. And for that reason, they asked him, and it was a trap question. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife and think in terms of for any reason? And in verse 3, he answered 
and said unto them, What did Moses command you? It takes them back to the inspired law given through Moses, which they were still under until Calvary, until the work of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, and his resurrection, and the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost, until those great events when everything changed, and the Jewish era and the reign of the ancient Jewish law came to an end and all was fulfilled in Christ. Until that moment, they were still under the law of Moses. And so he points them back to Moses in, you might say, contempt for all the generations of additions to the law. These uninspired human additions of their leaders and the rabbis. What did Moses command you? And verse 4, they kind of avoid his question. And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Now back in Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, I won't turn to it, but the great statement of the Mosaic law, there was a twofold statement, and it was along these lines. If a, a man is displeased with his wife, and then there's a second statement joined to it, because he finds uncleanness in her, that is to say, adultery, she's betrayed him, she's committed adultery, then a certificate of divorce can be issued. Now that was Moses. That was the Mosaic law. But you see, what Jewish tradition had done is they'd picked on the first phrase, if a man has a wife who displeases him, there you are, divorce for any reason. And they ignored the second statement because he has found uncleanness in her, because she's betrayed him, because she's committed adultery. They left that out, and they just took the opening statement without the qualifying statement, and they said, you can divorce for any reason. Well, Christ refuted that. No, you can't. It must be on the grounds of betrayal and adultery. And of course, it works the other way around, as Christ points out. If she finds that he has betrayed her and is unclean and has committed adultery and betrayed the marriage. Now, Christ goes on to explain to them in verse 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, and it was not so. So the explanation that Christ gives them is this. No kind of divorce is pleasing to God. Divorce was brought in because of sin and because of the hardness of heart. If 
a man was betrayed by the adultery of his wife or a woman betrayed by the adultery of her husband, then some provision must be made for the innocent party. He is not bound to her forever. She's an adulterer, a betrayer. She is not bound to him forever if he is an adulterer or betrayer. So, Moses explains, God makes a provision for the innocent so that the innocent can be released. But don't think that that means that God views divorce lightly. His anger is toward the offender. God is against the offender. And he gives the provision for the innocent so that the innocent is not compelled to be bound and to suffer. So that's the explanation that Christ gives. It wasn't the intention from the beginning, he says in effect, husband and wife were meant to cleave to each other in love and care, and we'll look at some of the provisions. So here is the verse 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, written into our biological constitution. Society is rejecting that right now, as you know, and turning its back on the law of God and even basic biology but God made them from the beginning of the creation he ordained that there should be male and female now verse 7 for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the implication of these words is this bearing this in mind two sexes Men and women, made in many respects the same and in many respects so differently, are designed and fashioned for marriage. That's the idea. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. With this in view, the difference between the sexes is a design of God for a purpose, for marriage, for this priceless, unique, and special union. They complement each other and fit together perfectly. Men and women, equally significant in the sight of God, equally, though often differently, gifted, equally valuable and yet made different so that they're suited perfectly to each other in marriage for this cause. Of course, we're not talking about those who remain single this morning, which is also, in the word of God, a very noble and significant state to be in. And we're not diminishing that at all in focusing on the fact 
that also men and women are fashioned for marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. So we'll alight for a moment on that word cleave to his wife. Cleave or some would translate it cling to his wife. It's a glue verb. Be glued to his wife. It speaks of permanence. That's the intention. Though there is provision for betrayal and the breaking of the marriage by uncleanness, yet uh, the duty is to cleave. And we'll look at that. And uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. There's a new unit, a new family. Of course, we're to honor our parents, but no longer is the father the head of the new family. He surrenders his headship. Father and mother, there's a new unit. Sometimes, in some cultures, it used to be so, a hundred years ago in English culture, but it slipped away. And in some cultures it still is the case that if you have children and your son or daughter marry, you still have a hold as a parent, uh, an authority, and they should listen to you. And you can interfere with their married lives and direct them and insist on this and insist on that. No, says the Lord. A man shall leave the, uh, his father and his mother. He continues to honor them, but no longer is he bound to do everything that their wisdom suggests or dictates. He and his wife are a new unit before God and responsible to God. And the old authorities are broken. And that's the message of Christ. For this cause shall a man leave. And it's a radical departure. His father and mother and cleave to his wife. And verse 8. And they, the two twain, the two of them, shall be one flesh. One flesh simply means one body. As one body. Cleave. Adhere as if one body. Now I'm coming back to Mark chapter 10, but let me turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 5, because here you have a perfect definition of what it means to cleave or to be one flesh. Ephesians 5 verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, one flesh, one body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. And then the quotation, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, goes all the way back to Genesis, and shall be joined, 
shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh, joined. Let's have a simple examination. In what way are husbands and wives to be joined? I'm going to mention 15 aspects of being joined. You can't possibly remember them all. You know them all already, if you think about it. It's a kind of examination. 15 aspects of being joined. Are we married? Do we honor marriage? Obviously, first, we put joined in love. We are to be perfectly joined in love. Love is appreciation and affection. Love thinks. It doesn't moon along on autopilot. It thinks. It appreciates. It emits affection. It acts with great acts of kindness and courtesy. Love is courteous always because it values. The other party is special. Love never shouts. Love never speaks at. It speaks to. Love is always full of feeling and appreciation and affection. That's only the first. We're joined in love. It's mutual love. It's not him loving her and love not being returned very much or her loving him more often and he not returning it particularly, not working at it. It's mutual. It's love exercised towards each other. Joined. One flesh. As if one body. Then I move on to loyalty. Joined in loyalty. Absolutely loyal to each other. Never does a Christian man for one solitary second, think of divorce. I'm not talking about situations where something terrible has happened or there's been betrayal or we'll talk about violence given time or anything else. I'm talking about in the ordinary course of events. Never do you think of it, let alone say it, That's an act of gross disloyalty, even to contemplate. If you contemplate something like that so foolishly, don't be surprised that Satan comes in and works on that idea and causes it to foster and develop. You don't even think about it. You owe each other absolute loyalty. And the loyalty is emotional loyalty too. You don't make sarcastic or cruel or undermining comments about each other to third parties. 
You wouldn't betray each other in that way. Sometimes people do it in the presence of others. They'll say something which is perhaps not deeply, but still mildly hurtful to a husband or a wife, exposing some foolishness that he or she has committed to some other party to make fun of them. Loyalty doesn't allow, even at that level, betrayal or disloyalty, absolute loyalty one to another. And thirdly, can I mention care? Care for each other, which means, which involves yet another point, understanding. Understanding the other's vulnerabilities and sensitivities and caring. He must care for her with her unique burdens in the family and so on. He doesn't leave her to get on with it, leave her to bear burdens alone. He cares and shares, and she his. There's mutual care and supportiveness going on all the time, understanding of each other. Then there's indebtedness. Do we keep alive the debt we have to each other? I owe so much, we say, to my wife. I owe so much to my husband. He has done so many things for me. She has done so many things for me, made so many sacrifices, endured many difficulties. I am indebted. And I don't want to lose that sense of indebtedness. Then when human nature being what it is, some unwise and unfortunate difference arises between us. Our attitude and our self-control is held because we're so indebted to each other. We love each other, we care for each other, and we are indebted to each other. I can't say that that the flesh would say. I can't do that that the flesh would do. We're joined in indebtedness and we're joined in consolation. Do you understand your wife's vulnerabilities and needs as a woman and in her circumstances? Every wife has to work these days She's got great pressures upon her in the home and in the place of business or work. Do you have understanding of these things? And as a wife, do you have understanding of his? Do you lay burdens upon him, which is more than he can cope with at any one time? We have to have understanding and be able to console. Are you joined in purpose? Or does one go one way and the other go the other? Do you have your separate departments of life and you don't intrude? Or do you have a common purpose? Of course, as Christians, it's easy. Our common purpose is the service of the Lord. 
There are some, even pastors and teachers who will teach, no, his place is here and her place is at home. You attend all the meetings and she looks after the children at home. That's not joined in purpose. We're joined in purpose, husband and wife. Both have avenues of Christian service, if possible. And they potentiate each other. And they protect each other's access to service and to worship and to fellowship. It's mutual all the way through. Do you have a common purpose? Our purpose, the Lord has shown us and the Lord helping us is such and such together. It's our common purpose and we're joined in this. That's how we have to live as believers in the Lord. Joined in pleasure. Sometimes one person in the marriage will have a pursuit or a sport or a hobby. Well, it may be when you get married, if you can't do it together, it may be, because I can't make the rules, you have to think it through, but it may be that you have to give that up if it's something you cannot do together or it occupies too much time. Pleasure. To accord yourselves times of pleasure together that you can both share in. We are joined. One body, one flesh. You can't in your body, this is a ridiculous illustration, you can't say with my head or my hands I will do one thing, with my feet I'll do another thing. Well, you're married, you're one flesh, one body. So you have to try wherever possible to do things that you can do or enjoy together. Then conversation. Who does all the talking? Or do you have very little time to talk together? You haven't programmed it in. We're joined in conversation. We interact, we discuss things, we talk about things. Must give time so that the list is long. Learning. Does one go one way and the other another? Do we have some things we learn together? Progress together? Talk about together? Learning the things of God? Learning the ways and the plans of God? Worship together? Sorrow and sacrifice together? Are you both in the sacrifices? I feel the Lord would have me do such and such, the man will say. It's going to be very taxing. It's going to be, involve a lot of sacrifice. I'm going to take up perhaps a lay pastorate and pursue my employment and bring up the family. Certain things are going to go. Great sacrifice. Yes, but is your wife 100% with you? She can't be the lay pastor, but it's going to be a sacrifice and she's going to have to make it too. 
Is it something you've sought the Lord in together so that both determine and voluntarily undertake that sacrifice and commit to it together? You're joined in sacrifice and in service. I've already mentioned we potentiate each other and in your policy for life. They too shall be one flesh. Let's go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And uh, verse 8, They twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain, two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Stay a solemn warning Stay within the rules of God. Now this makes the disciples anxious. Uh, verse 11 and 12, we can deal with these very briefly and we'll go to the anxiety of the disciples, which comes out in Matthew's Gospel. Verse uh, uh, 10, And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And uh, what they asked him and how he replied is more in the Gospel of Matthew. They were very concerned. Some of them were married, like Peter. Where does this leave us if we cannot divorce for any reason whatsoever, but only for adultery? So they asked him, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. And verse 11, he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery, unless the separation is on the grounds of adultery. And verse 12 repeats it the other way round. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another for any reason, she committeth adultery, unless it's for the reason of adultery. But what does this say about other causes? So far, the Lord has only mentioned adultery as a ground of divorce. What about desertion? What about violence and cruelty? What about certain other things? Are they not included in the passage? No, not here. But it doesn't mean that they're not included because there's more to be said. And just for a moment, you might like to turn to John 16. I'm going to actually read the passages because it's such an important issue. And in John 16 and verse 12, we read this. Christ speaking to the disciples I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. You cannot carry them like the bearing of a burden. There's too much. I've taught you for three years. I've told you great essentials. There's much more to learn. There's more to learn about the church, for example, how it's to be structured, how it's to be ordered, how it's to be governed. 
There's more to learn about marriage and divorce. There's more to learn about many, many things. But you cannot take the weight of all this information right now, he says. Well, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Verse 13 of John 17, how be it, when, John 16, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come, and so on. There's more revelation to come on many different things. And it came. The word of Christ came through the apostles. Now I'm going on to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here you have an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, the apostle Paul It's Christ speaking, but he's speaking through the apostles, as he said he would. Verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, if somebody is deserted by the husband and he's an unbeliever, let him depart. Well, he has departed. He's gone. He's not there. Let it go. If you've been deserted, let it go. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. In other words, the marriage bond has been broken by desertion. It's been ended. And the person is no longer bound to the deserted one. And because the bond is ended, is free to remarry. That's the teaching of Christ through the Apostle Paul. But there's a puzzle here. And people have often fixed on if the unbeliever depart. Oh, but I know a case where the husband who deserted the wife wasn't an unbeliever. He was a professing Christian. And yet he's deserted his wife. So it doesn't apply. She is still bound to him. He's gone to the other side of the world. But he's never married again. And he hasn't, there's no evidence he's committed adultery. So is she still bound? Because this is only if the unbeliever departs. So what do we make of that? Well, we go to Matthew 18. You'll see why I'm just methodically going through the verses. And in Matthew 18 and verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his faults between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, he will not repent of his misconduct. Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, a tax gatherer. Well, this is the teaching of the Lord in his lifetime. In other words, if a man who is a professing Christian miserably and cruelly deserts his wife and abandons her, even though he's a professing Christian, if he won't respond to appeal and uh, to a call to repent, and if he won't respond to proper and scriptural and from the church requirements to repent of his sin, he is to be classed as an unconverted, unbelieving man. So that's the rule of scripture. So after all, desertion is provided for in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the rule of the person being considered an unbeliever. What about violence? And what about verbal violence? If it's intolerable and continuous and terrible, what about those things? Well, the reformers and the reformed tradition really ever since has taken this view that this is one of the cases included under the first Corinthians 7 rule. And this is how it works. If there is a case of violence, of course it could be so bad that we have to find a place of safety for the innocent party or the one to whom the violence has been directed and children and so on. That may have to be done. But if there is uh, violence or even verbal violence and the person is a believer, he's called upon to repent and mend his ways. And if he does so, well, that is well. That is a victory for the power of God and for the blessing of God. But if he won't do so and he won't mend his ways and is making life utterly intolerable, then it may force a separation. And if he still won't mend his ways, well then, the separation is viewed as a desertion. And the one whose conduct brought about the separation is deemed to be the deserter. Now that was the view of the reformers. And they wanted to change the law to enshrine that, but at the time of the Reformation, the House of Lords wouldn't let them. However, the view of the reformers was that uh, uh, violence and verbal violence and things like that came under the rule of correctable things, and if they could not be corrected, then a separation was inevitable, and that in due time would be construed as a desertion. And that's the rule that we hold to today. 
but I've just traced through the scriptures to show you how in the Reformed tradition that rule is arrived at. But I've time just to deal very quickly with one or two other things so that we end on a positive note. Ephesians 5, once again, and verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Yes, the husband is the head of the home. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is the saviour of the body. What a statement for husbands. In what sense are you head of the home? You are head of the home as Christ is the head of the church and the saviour of the body of the church. Is your headship like that? Is your leadership of the home like Christ's leadership of the church? What did he do for the church? He suffered and died for it. He gave himself for it in sacrificial love. Is your headship a sacrificial love? Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church with such patience and forbearance and kindness constantly pouring blessing upon us and gave himself for it. A husband has a, an earned headship. He deserves and earns the headship of the family insofar as he gives himself for his wife that he might sanctify and cleanse it for her help, for her good, for her happiness, for her pleasure. When you think of headship, think Galatians 5.22. It's the closing word. There's a certain amount of teaching coming out of the United States. It's called complementarianism. It's all right so far as it goes. There are complementary roles for men and women, the husband being the head of the home, different roles assigned. But there's a sour side to the teaching that comes from many proponents of this in the United States. It's a swaggering type of headship, a dominating type of headship. And they don't look at Galatians 5.22. The rule for the Christian life for men and women and especially in the exercise of headship is all here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, 
self-control. If husbands, you can rehearse those values and pray for them and manifest them, you'll know what biblical headship of the family really means.